Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. Yeah, we've seen headlines that inflation is now the number one issue. Not not coronavirus, not sh- supply chain. The number one problem that they have is my cost of living is going up. They are accelerating taper and they will raise probably four times this year. And there's nothing they can do to change course, is my belief. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Uh, today, I'm joined uh, by two guests. Uh, Checkmate at BTC is the lead analyst at Glassnode and Mr. Uh, Jordy Alexander. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting us on. Hey, Michael. So guys, I want to just dive right into it here. Uh, In this episode, I really want to explore the connection in between everything that's going on uh, in macro and broader financial markets right now uh, and some of the price action that we're seeing and just overall activity in crypto. Uh, I think one of the the changes, right, um, in what's in crypto uh, overall, so to speak, from the la- from previous cycles, is that there is a stronger connection to what's going on in the macro. So I'd really like to fleece out what do we think that connection looks like, uh, and maybe we can start with actually overall how you two see the macro environment right now. So I guess you know it's January of 2022. Looking out into the future, start from 10,000 feet. Like, what is kind of your macro framework moving into 2022? So I think from from my perspective, um, we've essentially seen a decade of you know what are they, uh, um, uh, strange monetary policy, right? Everything from quantitative easing, um, every time they try to take it away, temper t- um, uh, taper tantrums. We've seen increasing central bank liquidity, and you know March 2020 really accentuated that, right? We've seen this change in investor behaviour. It was a very clear line in the sand. We saw people's behaviour in a macro sense change in a big way. Um, simultaneously, we're then seeing increasing volatility in terms of, you know, the reaction function was to essentially inject liquidity. We then see that, you know, inflation starts to scream higher. Who saw this one coming? Um, and now they're in the process of trying to fight that inflation. And, you know, th- they've got a number of tools, but their primary one is actually their words. So, you know, the central banks are trying to now control what is becoming a political issue, um, which is the cost of living. And it's now on everybody's radar. So therefore, they have to now pivot from being fairly loose with monetary policy and, you know, arguably some some pretty good times, particularly for asset prices uh, over the last decade, to now seeing an environment where they have to actually fight inflation, um, which they haven't been able to generate for, you know, many decades um, in any appreciable scale, um, at least not on on a CPI reading. And, you know, we're now seeing that they have to kind of reverse course. But at the same time, if we look six months out, there's a few deflationary storm clouds. There's always that deflationary backdrop of technology and debt and all these things that are trying to slow down the system. Um, and they're trying to fight inflation in the face of what is likely to be some kind of deflationary event. Um, so, you know, it, it's almost trying to thread the needle between too much inflation and triggering a recession, um, which is a very, very difficult needle to thread. And, uh, you know, certainly if someone asked me if I want to be a central banker, it would be a very firm no. In terms of like a general market outlook, um, you know, I've hinted at this uh, in, in a few places. My, my view is that very much uh, the, this like huge bull run that we've had uh, is over. Um, we're going to have quite a different environment from this year going forward. The, the really thing that changed um, very recently, I would say, you know, in December, we had interest rates still quite low um, and we've had this huge surge now in just a few weeks. Um, for me, that's kind of what I've been waiting for to see, to know that the market is going to reset because on the flip side, what you've had is um, every time there was a little bit of a dip in equities, you know, yields would go back down, 
Um, and that would kind of create fuel for like even more asset pumping because yields are low. Whenever you see both of those things kind of go down at the same time, obviously 60, 40 portfolios are getting wrecked. Um, so there is actual like, you know, wealth reduction for the vast majority of uh, traditional finance people. Um, and the Fed can't actually do anything. So uh, like Chuck Mick said, they're not actually able to do their usual playbook. And I think the one thing everybody gets wrong is they assume they look, you know, 2018, um, 2013, they're looking at these like situations where there was enough space for them to reverse course. You know, there's like a 10% correction in equities and suddenly like they're just gonna, you know, put the brakes on. I think they can't do that. They, they are gonna have to fight inflation and people who are expecting a pivot by the Fed and they're not gonna raise three, four times and you know, even very recently, I was hearing sophisticated PM investors tell me that they're not even going to taper. Of course not. They're going to realize it's it's going to affect the markets. They are accelerating taper and they will raise probably four times this year. And mm. there's nothing they can do to change course, is my belief. So I guess to sum up, would you guys say now that the Fed would actually be more willing to accept a scenario of deflation because they've kind of They've got their dual mandate. Uh, you know, they've got the full employment. They need to make sure that there's price stability in the face of inflation. So, I don't know if if they're kind of making that decision between a deflationary environment and dealing with inflation while keeping rates low. Are you saying you think that they would choose deflation uh, as an outcome? I think it's a very interesting balance, and I think the reason why it's so difficult to fully appreciate is it's political. Right. Um, I think Jim Bianco has done an excellent job of basically charting this whole process of inflation up and um, US politic approval ratings heading down. So this is the real challenge. It's now actually a political problem. And you know, we've seen headlines that inflation is now the number one issue, not, not coronavirus, not sh supply chain. The number one problem that they have is my cost of living is going up. Mm. And that makes it a political issue. Um, and you know, that, that, that does force the hand of the Fed to make you know, hard decisions. Um, and the challenge is, what is that balance point, that tipping point between how much liquidity removal, interest rate hikes, potentially even quantitative tightening, how much can the market actually absorb realistically before you start to get some kind of significant correction? And the challenge here that I see is that there's very few ways that the stock market price is now tethered to reality, right? We've kind of seen this separation of what makes sense and what prices are saying. However, there is one tether that I think still remains, and that is that when the market is up, consumer confidence follows. When the market falls down by 20%, 30%, 40%, who knows how far it can go, the exact opposite happens. So there is still a tethering there between consumer confidence, and that also then translates into likely unemployment. So that, that's the challenge, right? If we start to see a major correction, do we then see their second mandate, full employment, mm. suddenly come back into the fore? How do they juggle that, that, that mission within a political framework? It's a, it's a tough gig, and I don't think there is an easy answer for them. Um, I think we're going to find out, but I think it's going to be a volatile six months as a result. Obviously, we've been told like, inflation is transitory a million times and, until they couldn't keep that up anymore. And now we, we hear that we're at full employment. I would, I would posit that the employment picture um, is very similar to other times in the past. Um, numbers are exactly the same. And in those situations, we were told by Yellen and by other people that this is not full employment. And now because they need to fight inflation, the exact same numbers are suddenly like, you know, we're done. Like th this is the full employment. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, everyone's trying to figure it out as they're going along. I don't think they 
quite have a plan. Um, in terms of inflation, from a first principles perspective, instead of looking at, um, you know, what's the balance sheet and like, um, I, I kind of see it like as a, as a human being, like, you know, what's mm-hmm. going to make me spend more. And um, I think if you have billionaires just adding more billions, yeah, it'll just be asset, asset prices going up because they don't need another, you know, kitchen table. They don't need like more lumber. They're, they're kind of done. They have their act capacity. Uh, the thing that happened is a lot of, uh, I would say like middle class and lower class people got more dollars than they're used to having. And obviously we've seen the, the bank accounts uh, go up a lot. And those are creating a lot more velocity uh, of money compared to just somebody who's going to add another zero to their bank account at the top. Um, so for me, like inflation is is purely, you know, demand side. There's obviously a lot more people that are able to buy things. A lot of people suddenly are able to buy houses that, you know, a couple of years ago were not just based on their stock portfolio. Um, so those people are obviously going to raise prices. We've seen house prices go up. An incredible amount. I mean, the speed at which um, housing has is really, you know, twenty percent a year um, for for like the last couple of years is is astounding. And yeah. obviously, we've seen that in Korea that that type of thing prices out a lot of the young people, and then you have this like social backlash. So it's a huge pickle, and I'm not sure how they're going to exactly find the needle. I think they will try to get inflation down to 4% and then sell us a story that it's going in the right direction. I don't think they're going to even try to get it to 2%. I think they're just going to be okay with four and then try to sustain, you know, asset prices to whatever 4% can allow. Yeah. I completely understand the short term pressure, right? To raise rates and to fight inflation. But like, if you zoom out and look at some big mega trends, right, you've got decelerating growth in population, right? We can't find structural growth uh, to save our lives, right? Not just in the US, but all around the world. Uh, we have crushing debt burdens in general. So I think we can all agree they're heading towards an inflationary environment. I think the big question is what do rates do in that environment, uh, right? Because if you go back and look at the, the analog of the 1940s, we had extreme periods of inflation, uh, but there was a yield curve control that got implemented. We kept rates really low. Uh, if you look at the 1970s, we had inflation at that period of time too. And Volcker famously, famously came in and fought inflation and jacked interest rates up to 18%. So I guess my question to you guys is, I mean, let's say we do see inflation at a sustained 4%. Where do, what do you think rates do in an environment like that? Yeah, I think the, um, the best analogy that I've uh, heard was by Julian Brigden, where he's basically explaining that, you know, the money that we was essentially printed over the last 18 months it's like a python swallowing a sheep. The sheep just doesn't dissolve yeah. and go away. It's got to go through the long and arduous process of, you know, being digested. So the economy is currently trying to digest trillions and trillions of dollars that weren't there um, 18 months ago, and that has to filter out through the system. And you know, alongside, I mean, everything, nothing goes up in a straight line. There's going to be bouts of inflation, um, and again, a lot of this comes down to the way things are measured, right? They're looking at CPI year on year. The same way that we had, um, you know, these CPI prints uh, relative to March 2020 um, and April when things were at the absolute worst at the start of the pandemic. Um, you know, if you do year on year, of course, you're going to have a, a pretty skew if result. And then the next year, that's going to stabilize. So, you know, as we go over the next 12 months, the, these year on year metrics, which, you know, um, as, as right or wrong as they want to be, um, it's what people tend to use is what the media tends to grab onto. And that's the thing that sticks into people's head. Um, in many ways, people can feel inflation. They know it's there. But until the headlines start screaming 6%, 7%, prices going higher, most people 
you know, they, they, they kind of, they grumble about it, but internally. It becomes external when it becomes, you know, say the thing out loud. So that's kind of the, the dynamic here. It's, um, it's very much the economy trying to digest that extraordinary amount of money. Um, you know, there's going to be bouts of deflation that start to creep in. Year on years will start to slow down. But at the same time, um, when we look on a big picture, that's kind of the next 12 months, um, we may well get a slowdown and a peak in inflation and the numbers start to calm down. But we also have wages that have now gone up, right? We've seen minimum wage start to uh, climb up. Companies that, you know, um, people simply yeah. won't come back to work until their wages go higher. That is very, very sticky. And when that inflation gets into the system, that then becomes this kind of long-term macro um, high probability that we're going to actually have some sticky inflation that's uh, going to last a while. Yeah. I agree with you. I think another thing, too, when people talk about inflation, um, I notice a lot of these conversations, at least that I listen to, seem very U.S.-centric to me. Uh, we analyze things that are going on in the U.S. market. We talk about the Fed, uh, when, when in reality, probably at least half the conversation deserves to be directed towards China and what's going on over there. Uh, I mean, because one of, one of the most inflationary uh, impulses that we could get, right, we've essentially absorbed their labor market for the past 30 years or something like that. And we've had artificially low cost of labor in China. If our relations between the US and China were to break down, I feel like that would have a super inflationary effect on wages basically overnight, right? Or maybe it just takes a while to kind of grind through supply chains, get moved and all that kind of thing. But um, I agree with you. Uh, one, one question that I have for you guys is how do you think about liquidity conditions um, in this market, right? So everything that we're talking about suggests to me that this incredible tap of liquidity that have been flowing into both stock markets and then kind of more indirectly through crypto is going to be turned off. Um, what do you think about the role just of liquidity in markets in general? How should we think about it? I mean, for me, that's always the number one concept is liquidity. That's that's kind of the forward leading indicator. Um, you know, if you're looking at a few months, and you want to know what direction things are going to get crazy in. It's always liquidity. And we've had so much that. Uh, you know, Checkmate said before that uh, equities are a little bit detached from reality. I would actually think that equities have been quite rational um, in terms of, you know, there is this money. It has to go somewhere. Bonds are completely, um, you know, not the place to be. And, you know, equities are, is one place. Uh, real estate, of course, has been going up a lot. And I, so even though um, I do think we're you know, at the start of a new cycle uh, and we'll enter potentially a stagflation environment. I don't think that uh, equities will correct massively uh, because of this liquidity that ultimately we'll have to see where it settles down when they, um, you know, start pumping it out, quantitative tightening, uh, treasury general account starts getting rebuilt. We'll have to see where it ends up, but I, I still, I'm pretty sure it'll be like in the low fours uh, on the S&P. I, I don't expect that we'll, see a big contraction. Um, so asset prices follow liquidity. And um, the thing that changes is like, will you get like a big boost? Like, will you get like a meme coin, Dogecoin kind of like going to 200 billion? Those are the situations that liquidity can cause. And I think we'll see a lot more discipline put into the market. And the people that have been sort of you know, writing, obviously we've already seen ARC, right? Like we've seen like these crazy futuristic names based on space and narratives that are not actually adding anything right now uh, in terms of value have been getting wrecked. And with less liquidity going forward, I, I think that's going to be very much the case. So I agree that I think that the, the liquidity is probably the number one metric that we need to be looking at. Um, you know, I've always looked at Bitcoin as like the, the fire alarm. It's like the one thing that goes off whenever they start debasing the currencies, the first thing to react. And that's most likely to happen to the downside as well. 
Um, what do you think is kind of the trigger point for the, the Fed or central banks to actually reverse that and say, you know, they're going to go through this rate hike process. They're going to go through this tapering. Maybe they even get into quantitative tightening. Do you, do you have a feel for where that kind of trigger point is, for where it may be too much, where they slow down? Do you have a kind of feeling for what would invert your thesis and, and say that maybe they are going to kind of keep the party going for one of a better term? I don't think they can. I mean, I, I, I just don't see any way. I think that they have to get inflation down to like the three to four percent so that they can at least reduce inflation expectations. You know, we talk about inflation, but inflation expectations is other thing that's gone out of control. I mean, you have newspapers around the country in the U.S. and like even around the world. Their headline is about inflation. So that creates inflation expectations in the future. And I think they need to at least get the direction right. I think the direction is what's scaring people right now. And even like the bumpy pattern in crypto and some other asset classes like uh, NASDAQ, for example, is a lot about the direction. You know, the direction of interest rates has been accelerating in one way. Um, when interest rates settle down and stop moving as fast, I think, you know, that'll be the moment at which we put on all the chips, you know, we show our cards and we see like where all this liquidity will end up once it's digested. Uh, but in the meantime, um, yeah, I don't think there's any way they can reverse course. Like, I, I, I find it hard to imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think that the only thing that can, um, if we do get some kind of correction that that does in fact start to get some serious momentum and that starts to infect, um, uh, starts to affect confidence, right? And you start seeing um, unemployment numbers start to climb back up. I think that's probably the only thing um, that I can see kind of triggering it. Um, the other thing is if you get some kind of major dislocation in the bond market, all right, and the credit markets freeze up, um, I think that's, I mean, realistically, the equities are one thing, but the credit markets are the behemoth in the room, right? They have to stay stable, otherwise everything blows up. And it's, you know, we, we live in a fiat system that is based on debt and a growth obligation. And if that growth obligation cannot be met, that to me is probably the, the, the main trigger point, right? You need to see something blow up in the credit markets um, and, you know, expectations that I will not be able to pay back my debt in the future, creates the liquidity crisis, demand for the dollar um, goes through the roof, that breaks your emerging markets and, you know, the, the global system starts to unravel. So I think that's probably the, uh, the trigger point. So let's talk about how that translates into uh, crypto markets and maybe we can start with Bitcoin in general. Uh, Chuck, I actually really like, I, I like that description that Bitcoin's the fire alarm that goes off uh, when there's currency debasement or money creation that happens at too rapid of a pace. But, um, you know, what's becoming increasingly clear, I think, is there is a more solid connection in between what's going on in financial markets and Bitcoin and crypto. Um, how do you guys see that connection? Like, what's your framework for things? How, is, how are the broader markets connected with what's going on in crypto? Yeah, it's, it is a really interesting um, uh, side to it. And, and, you know, Bitcoin is kind of this, you know, um, increase. It's, a, it's one of the few free markets that we have or it's close to a free market mm -hmm. as you can get. Um, you know, we're increasingly seeing derivatives and stuff start to creep in. But um, certainly it's able to, I mean, look at gold, right? right. Same price it was a decade ago, despite all the money. So that's, that's just a great example of what happens when you've lost a free market and, and bonds as well, right? Good examples. Um, so Bitcoin tends to react to a lot of these things um, first, um, both to the upside and the downside. We've seen a number of instances through 2021 um, where when you map equities to Bitcoin, you know, equities are closed over the weekend. Bitcoin is not. Some piece of news happens, you get, a, you know, and Bitcoin will rally or fall off and then you'll see equities follow. Right. So it's almost because it is that 24 and global market. It's kind of pri and a risk asset, but also a risk off asset. Mm. Right. It falls into all of these different categories, depending on who you ask. Um, you get to see it move around um, in terms of price action, um, 24 hours a day, globally based, 
um, you know, deep liquidity all over the place, except on you know Sundays when you get some kind of leverage flush out. Um, but we do see it tend to behave in this um, fire alarm type behavior. Um, and the other thing that I, I certainly like to look at, and it kind of bleeds into the on-chain side that I spend a lot of time looking at, um, generally speaking, um, most of the folks who are buying Bitcoin and sticking it in cold storage typically have somewhat of a focus on the macro, right? There's a lot of people, there's a lot of Bitcoiners who, you know, um, have been around, have seen the volatility. And if you're willing to weather 50% downs on a semi-regular basis, um, and you spend a lot of time listening to macro podcasts, again, I, I tend to see myself in a lot of the on-chain data, right? That's my day-to-day. I'm listening to macro podcasts. I'm trying to understand what's going on in the world, trying to tussle with this inflation v. deflation debate. And, you know, to me, what I see is a destable, an unstable system in the fiat world. I see it increasingly so becoming more destabilized. Um, in the long term, which is my time horizon, um, I generally look at, you know, the volatility that we see now, um, kind of irrelevant over the macro scale when you look longer term. Uh, and I think there's a lot of Bitcoiners in that camp. So what I quite like about looking into the data of what's going on on the ledger is you can see people who are willing to weather the volatility, have a pretty good idea of what's going on, and are therefore making bets accordingly. So you can kind of see the, the reaction of some of these reasonably smart folks who, uh, who like to be clued in inside the ledger itself. So it's very interesting kind of watching how it performs in a price action perspective. We're seeing more and more firms um, you know, um, adding it to their balance sheet, pension funds starting to slowly get involved, banks starting to slowly offer it to clients. It's getting there, right? So we're seeing this institutional wave. But that also comes with the caveat of when institutions sell risk off, Bitcoin is the first one on their hit list. So, you know, it does start to have this um, institutional effects both in the to the upside and to the downside. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, I have kind of a different view on um, the current stage of Bitcoin and where it is in the cycle. I- it's good to hear like that perspective. And I hope we, we get to a point where Bitcoin has this like huge effect on the market. I think um, it's quite small still, you know, we're talking about a market cap that's, you know, a quarter of Apple, which is like one company. Um, I don't think it's quite there yet in terms of being, you know, a bellwether for the market. And we have some huge sellers still, like in terms of miners, we saw in China, you know, what happened um, in May last year and uh, some other periods where you know, there's still the potential to treat it as not even a risk on or risk off asset, but like an idiosyncratic risk asset based mm. on, you know, one country or something going on. Um, I think that will change over time. And I agree with Checkmate on the direction of things. I think, you know, in a few years, very much so, like we'll be in a situation where um, we'll see a clearer informational flow from Bitcoin to kind of what's going on in the entire economy. Um, my kind of thesis on how to value Bitcoin is based on, yeah, of course, currency debasement, like the dollar debasement um, compared to like non-fiat instruments is, is of course, one thing. And then the other thing is what is the demand for an asset that tracks that? And, and, you know, Bitcoin is like this invention. And during a time like we've had last year where there's just liquidity everywhere. Yeah, it'll do okay but it's actually not in demand. Like people will uh, disperse into like smaller coins, smaller meme stocks. The the liquidity will just go into like the looking for the hundred X of like, you know, some uh, safe moon or, you know, Shiba Inu, wh- whatever is going to be like the flavor of the, of the week. Um, I would say that the demand for an asset like Bitcoin only comes in play in situations where 
there is a need for that unit of account that, uh, you know, keeps its uh, value and people kind of congregate to that shelling point. And it's been clear that this, this is not the environment that we had last year. I think this year, um, if we do get stagflation, which I think is, is the kind of like default case in my view, you will have demand for an asset like Bitcoin. You know, if it was not Bitcoin, it would be like gold or something else that can act as, um, you know, a place for people to invest in while stocks are going down because the Fed is being, you know, very, very much uh, in a tightening mode. But at the same time, asset prices continue to go up. So, you know, you need something where you say, you know, my kids are going to college in five years. I can afford it right now. But like the way that inflation, you know, inflation is causing education prices to go up and my stock portfolio is starting to not perform anymore because of, you know, tightening. I need an asset. Like, what do I do? Where do I go? And I think mm. that's a situation where we'll have like a new narrative for Bitcoin and, um, you know, things will kind of move in the direction that Checkmate said. Yeah. And I think if I, if I kind of distill down and again, you know, whenever I'm uncertain about what the kind of direction is going, um, I'll try and see myself in the data. I'll try and see what, what is my kind of instinct telling me and am I seeing that showing up in others, right? Because, you know, essentially what we're looking for is what's the other smart money doing, right? Mm -hmm. Where are they moving their money and how do I try to align with them? Um, and, you know, the, psychologically for me, um, Bitcoin is one of these things that, you know, in a world full of uncertainty, it's the closest thing that I could, like seeing the evolution of it over time, it's getting into that realm of I can see this thing being around and still doing its job, um, you know, preserving wealth um, long into the future. So it kind of falls into that category, which I think gold probably held for a long time, which is that level of assurance, right? I can sleep quite comfortable at night knowing that I've got my, my, my Bitcoin sitting in, uh, in cold storage. So I think that psychological premium in an era of immense uncertainty is probably undervalued. Um, you know, again, it depends on, on timeframes and all the rest of it. But I, to me, that's kind of the psychological um, view that I have for Bitcoin. It, it is a degree of certainty in a world that is increasingly uncertain. Um, because again, when you play out the game theory, you look at the in integration of proof of work with energy grids. Um, there's lots of parts of this, you know, penetration into, into the third world, using it for, for remittances and things like that. Um, there is a widespread demand. It, it takes time to evolve and it goes through different phases, as we've seen. Um, but certainly it's that kind of uh, confidence game that I think, you know, at least personally, I think once you kind of get beyond the rabbit hole and you've gone far enough down, you understand uh, many of these layers. Um, it certainly, at least at a personal level, provides me a great deal of assurance that um, quite honestly, not much else does. Um, uh, I'm sure if Bitcoin didn't exist, I'd probably be a gold bug. So I fall into that category. I think that the meme or the narrative or whatever that Bitcoin has currently chosen for itself, uh, for better or for worse, is digital gold. And I think they have essentially trained a Pavlovian response on the market. I, I'm a subscriber to the super cycle uh, theory in the idea that it was never realistic to have four, four year uh, repeatable on and off cycles around the halving anymore. So typically, I think what Bitcoin reacted to was a supply shock at the base of the halving. Uh, and then it could kind of rebound from that. And the market kind of expected that, et cetera. And I think it actually is a large and complex enough market that we don't have that anymore. Um, or that that effect has been significantly dampened. And I'm not really sure what the market knows to do with that. And honestly, if you look at, we've kind of just been chopping uh, in the same range since like May of last year. So my, my kind of interpretation of what's going on with Bitcoin right now is that the market just doesn't know what it wants. Uh, I, I feel like based on what you two were saying before we actually got on this podcast, you might actually have a slightly more bearish view than I do. So talk to me about like what you think in terms of like 
market cycles. Where are we? Do, do you still believe in the four year? Are you a, a you know, Suzu super cycle uh, disciple? Do you think we're on the cusp of a bear market? Like, where do you think we are in the current cycle? I, I personally think we've absolutely done away with the four year. Um, and I think the thing that broke it, to be honest, there's two things. One is that miners just don't have the same impact that they, they did, they once did. Um, and that's even more relevant now because we've got miners moving out of China, mostly into, I mean, we've seen a fairly significant growth in, uh, in North America, both Canada and the United States, much, much deeper, much more advanced capital markets. They can fund these things with debt um, and equity, and most of them have mandates to sell very few or none of their coins. Mm. So sure, you could argue that that's potentially another you know, halving that's going on. But just generally speaking, um, as price has risen, right, the amount of coins that investors hold and start selling, that's going to create far more sell pressure than the, I mean, even the trading volume relative to mined coins um, is, is very, very low. So I think at the mining side, that's certainly um, reduced. I also think that as it moves more into um, macro, as it moves more into traditional markets and the investor class changes, I don't think we're ever going to see the same kind of textbook parabola we saw in 2017. I think that was a, you know, one that can, you can hang on your wall and say that probably won't happen again. Um, that really was a textbook, psychological, retail-driven parabola. Um, and it was perfect, right? It'd be very hard to hard-pressed to, to repeat that. Um, so I think those dynamics are certainly changing. Um, we saw 2019 was a funny um, mid-cycle kind of thing. We had um, the capitulation bottom. And actually, I, I remember this. This is when I was going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And I've actually used 2019 to really color uh, what we've seen over the last two years. So, um, you know, me looking back at 2015, we're down there languishing at $3,000, $4,000 after November 2018. And, you know, I I was fairly new to the market and I'm I'm there with my spreadsheet going, okay, last time we stayed down here for a year, do a quick spreadsheet. How much BTC can I accumulate for the next year? Happy days. March, uh, sorry, April comes along and bang. Bitcoin just rallies. We get a bunch of short squeezes. There's the plus token Ponzi going on. But the psychological thing that I remembered from that is you don't own enough Bitcoin and it's not going to wait for you, right? You need to be stepping in sooner rather than later when this thing goes. So Bitcoin has this way of reminding everybody you were too bearish. You didn't, you know, you didn't stack hard enough. It has this characteristic. The flip side of that is you then get another nine-month bear market that follows the previous 12-month bear market, right? So it also likes to punish you on the other side. And it tends to reward patience. Um, and when we look across many data metrics, you know, supply dynamics and things like that, there was a lot of people who saw that exact same thing. They saw 2019 go to 14K and they go, oh man, this thing when it runs is not going to wait. And the accumulation behavior that went on in 2019 was remarkable. Now, we then saw a very, very similar, almost repeat pattern happen 2020 into 2021. We had the capitulation um, in March 2020. We then had this kind of soft period and people were just accumulating, accumulating, accumulating. Um, Then we saw the repricing. And this is the thing. When we look at 2021, we did a year in review uh, report the other day. Um, It was a fairly modest year. We started at 29K and we finished at 40K or something like that. Um, But if you add December 2020 onto that, we rallied from 8K all the way to 43K. Suddenly, 2021 plus December 2020, spectacular year. So I think a lot of people kind of forget that. And the current market, or at least 2021 to me, we had that reminder, um, largely driven by the GBTC arbitrage, lots and lots of funds stepping in, Michael Saylor's hyping everything up. There was a huge amount of actual demand 
as well as this GBTC product that got massively oversubscribed. Huge amount of demand sucked coins out of the market. Price rallied to 64,000. Coinbase kind of punctuated the all-time high. And then that's when I think we actually entered into a probably a bear market. And by far the weirdest bear market I've ever seen. Um, and when I try to define what a bear market is, to me, retail leaves the building. The only people who are left are the hodlers and the buyers of last resort. Um, and that is more or less what we've seen. Um, if you look at any of our on-chain activity metrics, they have just fallen off a cliff. They've fallen back into what I call the bear market channel. It's kind of this slow grinding um, level higher. You can see the bull markets just explode out into uh, in, in on-chain activity. Um, that has not existed. And what we also see is loads and loads of big picture long-term accumulation happening, typically at and around significant dips. So to me, it looks like a bear market, um, even though we all-time high to 69,000, it's kind of the weirdest bear market I've ever seen, um, but all of the underlying characteristics of smart money accumulation on dips and, um, and selling into rallies, that's how we put in this 69K top, and basically no one except the hodlers is left. So when I look at those three characteristics, it looks like a bear market, but a bear market can essentially be just a 50% correction and sideways chop for six months Maybe we have to get some kind of capitulation event. Um, but, you know, that's kind of what I see. I think if we zoom out and look at this thing two years from now, it'll be one big sideways volatile consolidation um, that will probably eventually resolve back to the upside. But we have to go through the patient period first. My view of the super cycle is uh, it's quite complex. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of adoption um, over the years, and that's the basis of the super cycle. Um, you know, the idea is that the channel is going up and you know there's going to be like a sine wave turning it up but the general direction is there um you know that's clearly the case in terms of digital assets as a whole i think there's a huge distinction to start to be made in the future about you know bitcoin versus um, other assets which are more of like technological plays um you know some of them are extremely interesting and they will change the world and they will start to kind of compete with the fang stocks and like the other behemoths that we have um, and I think Bitcoin will start to behave, you know, a little bit more as like a risk off asset eventually. But, you know, for the time being, when you talk about a super cycle, it's, it's, it's probably best not to use that phrase because it, you know, it can mean so many different things to so many different people. Right. Um, I think, uh, ultimately with Bitcoin, like I said, the narrative has to be reestablished and yeah, I, I just don't agree with you guys. I think, uh, when money printer go burr, maybe like the first impulse is, you know, let's buy Bitcoin. And then I've seen it time and time again, uh, you know, a week later, it's let's rotate into Ethereum. And then, you know, two weeks after that, it's like, let's rotate into like the other coins. And then we have a correction and we kind of like go through, through this um, cycle and that's been working. I mean, as you know, sure. Like I philosophically um, kind of like check me, you know, be like a gold bug. I, I like Bitcoin as like a concept that we can keep a constraint on central banks. But I'm also like a very rational EV maximizer as an investor. Like, you know, I'm running a fund, I'm, you know, running my money and I have to uh, maximize um, returns. And, you know, after Bitcoin rallies that 20% and I know that every single time we're going to go into like Ethereum and then like the other coins, I'm not going to just stay in Bitcoin out of like a philosophical, you know, belief in it. Yeah, maybe like there'll, there'll always be like some cold storage bag that you don't, you know, you don't want to touch. But apart from that, you have to kind of go with the narratives and go with the, the market if you're trying to maximize EV, like if, if that's your uh, your aim, right? 
Um, and I don't think at all that Bitcoin has been like established as the Burr asset. I think if the if the money printer goes too hard, we saw very clearly last year that Bitcoin does not perform. Like the things that will perform are the tiny coins that people kind of get in this greedy state. You know, they want like the huge pump. And I think that Bitcoin will overperform in a situation where nothing else is performing and the shelling point becomes valuable. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. Where do you think the majority of the market sees Bitcoin as a value play right now? Right, like Avi Feldman's guy over at Block Tire, he's got this really great. You buy Bitcoin for two reasons, if you're not outside of ideology, right? Which is momentum or value. Uh, I don't think anybody's buying Bitcoin for momentum right now. So the question I would pose to you is, where do you think the market sees Bitcoin as a value buy? Um, what I think one of the most foundational metrics uh, in on-chain, at least, is the realized price or realized cap. And what that's essentially doing mm-hmm. is valuing every coin at the time and at last moves. Um, now, there's a lot of people who push back and say, well, you know, a lot of this trading activity goes on exchanges and we've got derivatives and all the rest of it, um, to which I have a fairly simple response, which is, well, there's 88% of the supply that's not on those balances. Um, and it, we continue to see the same patterns of, you know, um, smart money moving their coins to cold storage and then selling in bull markets. So many of the same behaviors still exist. Um, and there are absolutely still, a, you know, the dominant majority of these coins until we see 80% of coins on these venues. Um, there's still a great deal of signal that comes out of this and with fairly high reliability. So um, the realized price is kind of one of these, you know, um, it generally forms the ultimate um, support level. So, you know, um, most of the time at the end of a bear market, you'll get some kind of capitulation event. Um, You'll get some kind of ranging that that typically trades below the realized price, um, which is currently down around 24 and a half um, K. And, you know, you get some kind of accumulation that goes on. Now, um, I, we, it also caught the, uh, the March 2020 wick. So we essentially had March 2020 trade through it and then swiftly reversed from that point onwards, which is more of that liquidity crisis type event. Um, now, that's certainly a, a possibility if we get some kind of macro capitulation event. Um, you know, the realized price would be somewhere that mid 20,000s um, would be somewhere where I would expect a very swift reversal. Because I think generally speaking, um, you know, most clued in investors would be aware of the realized price. Um, aware of, you know, just simply um, if you use it as a mean reversion type model, what is the probability you're actually going to get down and touch it? It's somewhere on the order of about 15, 20%. So only 15% of Bitcoin's history is ever traded below the realized price. 
Um, if you then shrink down your, you know, Bitcoin matures over time, um, I like to look at everything from 2016 onwards when I look at these probabilities. Um, and, you know, again, you can even shrink that down to about 15%. So it's a very unlikely event. It doesn't stay there for very long. Um, and that generally means most of the time Bitcoin wants to trade above that, right? It wants to get above people's cost basis. Um, people are going to step in and buy because their value is where their cost basis is. And on aggregate, that realized price is their cost basis. Um, there's then other models that we can do where we essentially modify that realized price. That's kind of the floor. Um, and you say, okay, well, if there's a whole lot of people who are not selling their coins and they're actually putting more of them into cold storage, that's, that hodling behavior is conviction. We're seeing strength in the market. Conversely, when a bunch of people are cashing out, which we see at the end of um, bull markets, they believe it's overvalued. So that psychology gets baked into all sorts of other metrics. You know, one of them is, is uh, liveliness, which is one of these metrics that trades higher as more of these old coins come out of, out of cold storage and get sold and, uh, um, and trends down when you've got other ones um, going into accumulation. Now we can modify, you just take a simple ratio of this thing, trades between zero and one. When you've got more accumulation behavior going on, it will essentially raise up this kind of fair value model, this uh, realized to, to liveliness ratio. And it's currently sitting at 39.5. Right. So where hodlers currently believe if you, if you kind of weight their cost basis by how much their, their conviction is in the market, if you weight it by that metric, we're pretty much sitting at fair value right now. Right. We traded down over the, uh, the course of this week down to 39.5 and swiftly bounced. It also that same level um, actually caught the, uh, the July bottom at 29K, um, came down, kissed it perfectly and then reversed. So there's a bunch of models that we can look in there, but certainly um, coming back to, to fundamentals, where is everybody's cost basis? And from that level, where can we then look at where the, uh, the fair value is? And to me, that's sitting somewhere around that $40,000 floor at fair value. And the buyer of last resort level is down around uh, twenty four five. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, don't, I don't look at on-chain data as much. And I um, kind of have a similar uh, you know, number in mind. Uh, I mean, I fully agree with uh, what Avi says, you know, some people buy for momentum, some people buy for value. I think uh, the value floor is around 40. Um, we saw what happened in May of last year, where we just had this unprecedented, huge wave of fear, you know, FUD, supply, just everything at the same time. And it really did not break 30. What that tells me is, you know, I talked to a lot of very, very big um, funds out there. Um, They're not really expecting to see 24. They're not expecting to see below 30 because we had this cataclysmic event that could not break 30. So anything in the 30s is is value, including, you know, 38. Um, and we've seen that to break 40, it's it's going to take a lot, even um, with stocks possibly correcting more. That's kind of what um, happened recently, where stocks continued to go down uh, a few days ago, but then Bitcoin kind of still bounced off of 40, despite like a day where, you know, there was like a sea of red. So I think value starts from 40 and gets deeper and deeper. And I think just becomes a, a very easy buy anywhere in the low thirties. And I, I would be very surprised if we ever see like, you know, something like 24 K. If we're in a bear market already, then this is not like traditional bear markets for crypto, right? I think when we all think of bear markets, I mean, you know, pick 2017, 2013, whatever it was. I mean, these are sometimes 90% corrections, right? It was sustained for like two years. Uh, I guess one of the one of the differences, and I, I'm not really a fan of going back and looking back and saying, "Hey, we had three bull markets. I've got three data points, you know, I can point to." But um, 
one trend that you, you can kind of look at and extrapolate a little bit is that the ROI, right, the peak to trough of each of these markets is is much lower. It's getting less and less and less uh, diminishing returns, which is not a super popular return. And it's kind of spreading out over time, which intuitively makes sense to me. I don't think you just need to look at the three data points and extrapolate it. It's a larger market, right? It's much more liquid. It takes more incremental dollars to come in to drive the price up uh, and it can absorb, right? You've got more buyers to absorb sellers uh, kind of on the way down too. Um, but, you know, what do you got? I mean, do you think, A, just to close this whole segment out, do you think we are in a bear? And do we end up with one that looks as brutal as it did in, you know, 2017, 20, or like the end of 2018, or uh, end of 2017, early 2018? Do you think we just chop sideways? Like, what are, you, what are your thoughts, I guess, for what we do in 2022? Um, I mean, on a real basis, you know, when you take out inflation, I think definitely equities are going to be in a protracted Sally bear market, you know, you're not going to see real returns on equities for years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, in crypto, since we have so much adoption, you know, you, you have the headwind of the macro environment, but you also have the tailwind of, you know, people are the infrastructure around crypto, like custody, like people being secure and being able to actually invest large amounts and feeling comfortable with it and, and institutions having the piping, you know, with circles so they can move their fiat on and off, you know, the on ramps, off ramps, these things are getting more and more uh, developed and that's a huge tailwind. So I don't like to say that we're in a bear market or that we'll enter a bear market. I think this will be a consolidation phase where all the narratives will get retested. The narratives of Bitcoin, the narratives of Ethereum, of everything else will get kind of rethought as opposed to just liquidity, everything goes up. And we'll end up in a situation in a year's time where not everything will just be like it is today with like a 5% correction. Like I think things will um, will readjust. And for crypto itself, I think the market cap of crypto will continue to go up even during a challenging, you know, macro mini bear market sort of headwind. Um, I think it's probably going to end up being a trader's paradise because uh, the thing's going to be nice and volatile, but um, on a macro scale, uh, most likely sideways for a good period of time. Um, So, you know, I think that 2022 will probably be mostly a consolidation. Uh, We will see again how all the macro headwinds and, you know, monetary policy and inflation and deflation all kind of duke it out over the, I think the next six months going to be particularly hairy. Um, And beyond that, you know, just too hard to tell, but uh, we will probably have more clarity uh, after seeing what happens in that six months. Um, But I I agree. I think that in general, um, the interest level and the number of people who just find even at the very simplest sense, they just find, you know, the cryptocurrency market way more fun than stocks, right? There's, there's stuff to do. It's exciting. There's new technology. There's personal ownership. There's all sorts of things that come into it. Um, and, you know, when you look at a lot of the, I mean, just at a very simple level, um, stocks have overheads, right? And whereas most of these protocols have very, very limited overheads. Um, so, you know, even just from a sheer efficiency standpoint, uh, you know, replacing fin- parts of the financial system um, is, is quite remarkable. And uh, we are going to see some of these things. I mean, a, a great number of them will, will end up going nowhere. Um, but there will be a handful that, that do, in fact, change things uh, in, in a very, very big way. So I do expect people to continue to come in. Um, I think stocks are going to have a harder time versus crypto. I think um, the skeptics um, will be right in many ways and wrong on the big picture. Um, I think they, you know, many of them that write off. I mean, even just simply looking at the growth of stable coins. Um, you know, there's lots of talk of CBDCs and the like, but, you know, there's the US dollar dominance in the stablecoin market globally. That is just an unbelievably enormous network effect. 
Um, and you know, it, it actually makes sense for that to, to continue to become part of the, uh, the US government's toolkit. Um, so we'll see more regulation creep in. Uh, we'll see markets mature. I agree that we will see narratives get tested. Um, uh, I think that at the end of the day, that's where it becomes, um, you know, I think, Jordy, I think you've mentioned this, that you generally need to see Bitcoin rally out of and kind of lead the market out of the bear. Um, and we didn't actually have that, right? We saw this rally in August and October and alts just screamed along right next to it. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, to me, was saying that good chance this thing's going to roll over because the dog money hasn't got flushed out from a value perspective yet. Um, Bitcoin generally has to lead because its narrative is rock solid it, and its, its role um, in the future is, is, is you know, um, uh, much, much stronger. Um, many of these other coins kind of get by on a lot of hype um, and I think that you know reality does come, the price does get paid. Normally that comes in just sheer boredom and sideways um, and uh, you know it has to kind of flush out all the easy cheap money. Came too quick. Yeah, maybe one narrative for markets uh, can be that at a certain point, uh, you know, sentiment just needs to get stamped out of different segments. And actually, the top for Bitcoin was right around uh, the Bitcoin Miami conference when there was the laser eyes and the fuck Elon on stage, and sentiment needed to get stomped out there. And then, uh, you know, the altcoiners were all kind of you know dancing on the graves of Bitcoin for a little while, and the sentiment needs to get stomped out of them. And maybe it's just as simple as that. Uh, but Jordy, I, I know we're we're running a little low on time here, but you wrote this great thread. I'm on the game theory and just the relationship between Bitcoin and alts. Why, uh, you know, as Chuck was just alluding to, you need a strong Bitcoin uh, in order for crypto to be doing well, basically, as, as a sector. You just described, like, you know, talk to us a little bit about how you think about the relationship between Bitcoin and the rest of the market. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bitcoin itself is a larger market cap. It does, like you uh, mentioned, Michael, it takes a lot of money to move it up and down. And in a situation where there's like a lot of greed out there, there's a lot of um, liquidity and potential for returns. It's kind of in the individual investors' uh, personal dominant strategy to, you know, look for some smaller coins that they can just get like a, a huge return on. The problem is if, every, if everybody thinks like that, and you know nobody's buying Bitcoin, and everyone is just kind of spreading out, and you have this like huge dispersion across, you know, a ton of random assets. The whole space as a whole, the the total kind of value proposition, if you can imagine, you know, we have people who are not in crypto and they're looking to potentially invest and you're, and you're pitching them, you know, you're like, Hey, like you should get into crypto, Mr. Like, you know, Tim Cook or, or whatever, you have to give them, you know, a great story. And if the story is, you know, there's like Shiba Inu and, and like, uh, all these other dog coins and, you know, although those are going up as opposed to, you know, there's a couple core uh, FANG stocks, you know, of, of crypto, let's say that, you know, you, you can really expect that they will be the ones to um, to lead the market. It just becomes a negative sum game for everybody. Like the whole idea of digital assets gets sort of like chipped away at when everyone is looking for, you know, a rotation into the next 10x. And it's not really increasing the pie for anybody and in fact it sort of hollows out the middle where you know yeah like if you have a bitcoin that's worth five trillion dollars it makes sense that like a litecoin is worth you know 20 billion as like a test net for potential bitcoin improvements and it makes sense that ethereum is worth you know several trillion as a place where people can unlock the value of their bitcoin digital asset into like a DeFi 
space where they can take a loan and buy a house with it. So it mm -hmm. unlocks value for Bitcoin. And like those things start to trickle down and make sense as like a relative space. But if Bitcoin itself is worth, let's say, you know, 200 billion or like something tiny, the entire market will start to, you know, check their narratives. Like, well, if Bitcoin's 200 billion, should Litecoin be worth, you know, 40 billion? And, mm -hmm. and you, go, you go down the list and, and it starts to not make sense. And we all kind of collapse on our greed and our dispersion. So even though on an individual basis, it makes sense that people do this on a collective basis. Um, you know, ultimately it reduces the the total sum of the attractiveness of, of the sector, um, which is why I've been saying, you know, over time in a stagflationary in a more difficult environment, there's more discipline instilled in uh, people because, you know, when you look at specific segments, you know, DeFi was such a huge term, you know, on Bloomberg, everyone's talking about DeFi, Mark Cuban, and, and you know, this is kind of like the headline. A single dog coin, of which there are at least two now, has a higher you know market cap than all the blue chip, amazing DeFi innovations put together. Like you know, we have twenty five billion dollar individual meme coins when all of DeFi is, um, you know, the biggest ones of these are you know a couple billion, and, and a lot of them are, are much smaller than that. So, yeah, I, I agree that there has to be some reformulation of um, value and to give a little bit of credence to the other side of the argument i do think that now that the genie's out of the bottle and the meme the value of the meme you know we've seen is a lot higher than we expected like nobody could imagine that just a meme could go to like you know when dogecoin was at 85 cents we're talking about a hundred billion dollars for a meme and that just changes the the whole y-axis of what you think is possible right so going forward even in a bear market i do think that the investor psychology for a lot of retail investors there's been a change that is irreversible where they will not be surprised to see something you know like uh just a name without any like actual company or utility behind it have this meme potential and the value of the meme is something that, you know, for better or for worse, I think, you know, the next decade will bear market or not have many examples, many new examples uh, of people trying to get rich and pile on into like something that just grabs the public attention. Uh, all right, fellas, you've been super generous with your time. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you, follow your work, whatever, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so you'll find me on Twitter. It's uh, at Checkmatey. Um, and for everything we're doing at, at Glassnode, um, you'll find our research over at insights.glassnode.com. Um, and we've also got a YouTube channel. So each week we're putting out uh, a bit of a, just a 20-minute overview video where we kind of explore um, a lot of the metrics that we're looking at um, and our analyst team is, is paying attention to just to try and get a feel and understand what's going on in the market. So, um, you know, if you are looking for more on that kind of on-chain side of things, understanding how we kind of put these tools together, um, that's a nice way to kind of stay up to date, you know, 10 minute read and a 20 minute watch. So half an hour out of your week. Um, and hopefully people are learning more about uh, how to use the tools. Jordy. Uh, yeah. And for, and for me, like, you know, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at game theorizing and I try to post some long for long form threads once in a while. They take a lot of time to write. So it's not, uh, it's not daily, but uh, you know, every couple of weeks I try to have like a thought piece out. Excellent. All right, guys. Well, thanks. This has been a ton of fun. Uh, we'll have to do this again soon if we can ever uh, navigate the time zones <laughs> successfully. Uh, but I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Thank Michael. You. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.